Yama. Welcome to Blackademia, a podcast of yarns with First Nations academics of these lands now commonly referred to as Australia. I'm your host, Amy Teenig. I'm a Gamilaroi woman, and I begin by paying my respects to elders past and present and to the lands on which this podcast is recorded and streamed. Listeners are advised that this podcast, its associated website and social media presence may contain the voices and or images of First Nations people who have since passed. Discretion is advised. This is episode seven of season one of Blackademia. And this week's guest is the wonderful Dr. Marlene Longbottom. Dr. Longbottom is a Ewan woman from Rosebury Park Mission and is the inaugural Aboriginal postdoctoral research fellow with the Narawan Naju First People's Health and Wellbeing Research Centre, based within the Australian Health Services Research Institute at the University of Wollongong. Dr. Longbottom's postdoctoral work is a cross-national study between Australia and the United States that is seeking to understand the service system responses to violence and trauma experienced by Aboriginal Australians in New South Wales and Native Hawaiians in Hawaii in the United States. She is currently the International Visiting Scholar based within the Myron B. Thompson School of Social Work at the University of Hawaii, Manoa. Yama Dr. Longbottom, or should I say aloha, and thank you for coming on to Blackademia. Thank you for having me and Walawani. So tell me, um, as someone who is in First Nations to Hawaii and lives over here on the lands now commonly referred to as Australia, is it appropriate for me to say aloha to you? It is in the context that I am here and I'm First Nations from Australia um, and greeting is usually done through that way, aloha. Beautiful. Okay, awesome. So your official bio is really cool and very impressive. Uh, but before we get into your academic role, could you please introduce yourself in terms of who's your mob and tell me a little bit about your family life, if you've got kids or care responsibilities? Mm-hmm. Uh, Walawani means hello. It's, it's a greeting for hello or goodbye. I'm from, uh, my name is Marlene Longbottom. I'm from the Yuan Nation or the Kurun Yuan, which means the northern part of the Yuan Nation up around the Shoalhaven. Uh, I come from a small Aboriginal community called Roseby Park or Geringer, um, Aboriginal. It's a, a former um, Aboriginal mission and um, our land extends from the northern side of the Shoalhaven River down all the way um, past Rec Bay. So that's my grandparents' kind of areas. And um, I have a son who is 25. He is a very successful young man. And I don't have any carer's responsibilities, but I do have a lot of family um, and family is really important to me. That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. So tell me and the listeners, how did you come to be living in Hawaii? (laughs) I've, I've actually, to be quite honest, it was making the most of opportunities that came my way making connections and um, connecting with people, basically. So what happened a few years ago, uh, around 2016, I came out here for the NASA conference, uh, which is the Native American um, Indigenous Studies Association conference, which is held every year. It's an international 
uh, year where Native scholars get together and share their work and things like that. So, um, and there was a lady out here in Hawaii who I used to work with back home in Nara and we reconnected when I came and we just kind of got together and we started yarning about um, possibilities of working together. And so we kept in touch and developed a program of work. And once um, my PhD was kind of almost finished, um, the postdoc position became available and I applied and I was successful at that. And in designing the postdoc, which is um, the next phase after your PhD, um, I was able to secure some funding to help with um, obviously being over here and um, bringing that into my work. So it's kind of been um, a number of years of coming and visiting and being present in community, and which I have been doing over the last few years, mm. making networks and connecting with organisations but also really important people on the ground as well, um, being introduced to certain people. And part of what I do here um, is I'm the International Visiting Scholar at the Myron B. Thompson School of Social Work at the University of Hawaii. So it's kind of like everything's just come together and, um, yeah, I've made opportunities, uh, the most of opportunities that have come um, to me sort of thing. Um, putting yourself out, it can be a little bit challenging when you're an introvert like me, but, you know, it's, um, it, it's, it's, it's been an amazing journey so far. That's so incredible. And you're incredible. Um, so <laughs> um, I should put in a little disclaimer there. Dr. Longbottom is one of my kind of mentor people who I go to a lot. <laughs> I'm very, mental, very... Mental, mental. <laughs> you absolutely mentor me and uh, put up with my events and you're incredible and you give great advice. So, um, of course... You're over in Hawaii at the moment and your homelands this summer have been burning. Um, mm. And from someone who was here and watching on, like we weren't in immediate threat, but obviously we were impacted in different ways here. Um, I watched on as you managed to contribute even while you were, you know, 11 hours flight away. Um, and I was so inspired by yourself and Sierra Bella Douglas and, and people who dropped everything to do everything they could for their communities. And I just wondered if you wanted to share a little bit about that, what that was like being so far away um, while country was going through that. Mm. Um, oh, it was, it, was, it was one of those things where it was kind of, is this really happening? Mm. Like, is this is this really going on? Like, and I kept like social media was really useful for me to keep up with things. Mm. Um, so you know, I was keeping up with all the alerts and all of that sort of stuff. But um, I actually passed country to go and visit my son in Cairns, and I spent Cairns, I spent Christmas and and that up in Cairns, and then I flew back um, to Hawaii um, on New Year's Eve. So my family is still all down around the Shoalhaven but also down the coast and it, it, was, it was quite scary because one of my cousins and her family were um, like in the direct, you know, were surrounded by fire 
and I, ha- I didn't hear from her until I, you know, I got on the plane. Mm. And then I started seeing those, you know, those message bubbles bouncing yeah. <laughs> and then I knew she was okay. But it was, oh. quite a, it was quite a traumatic experience. So I'm sitting on the plane texting her really quickly trying to just make sure that they're okay because yeah. um, I'm obviously on my way over here and um, bawling my eyes out for half the plane ride. So you know, it's it's it, it was very scary. Um, it was traumatic for a lot of my family. Um, and so when I landed, you know, first thing I was doing was checking in with people and seeing seeing what was happening. And and obviously because I'm so connected with community up and down the coast, and I work with um, the four Aboriginal Community Control of Health Services, yeah. my first instinct was to check on them and their staff as well yeah. because, um, you know, it, it was important for me to do that just to say, hey, uh, is everyone okay? You know, what needs to happen? And then um, <clears throat> my momentum started and... Um, we, we started to get, like, a food drive and donations once the fires had passed through and that sort of thing. And the AMS has really stood up and mobilised that. So I just want to say a shout-out to Illawarra Aboriginal Medical Service, Waminda and Nara, the South Coast Aboriginal Medical Service, and obviously Katungal Health Service, which um, their staff and clients and their board have been massively impacted mm. by the fires. So it was a matter of... Okay, what can I do to um, to help? So it was more. It was about I can't be there physically, but I'll use social media to get the get the word out. So we we opened up a Twitter and Facebook account. Yeah. I've closed them now because obviously things have progressed. Yeah. Um, it was kind of like those just those immediate couple of days or a couple of weeks, and you know it was it was hard to see. Um, country burned the way it did and so much of it um some people say it it was a cleansing and a clearing I'm still not too sure what I make of it in that regard it's something that's happened and it's really made me realize just how important our community controlled health services are Mm. and also that many of our organizations have people who are impacted and it just brought community together and I think that's that's the strength in our communities and I think that's what people tend to lose sight of in in other ways um yeah so it was it it was one of those things that was draining Uh, I wasn't there on the ground but you know I was fielding inquiries I was getting text messages and calls from people back home who were who were quite stressed and um yeah it was it was a hard time, but you know we got through it, and and they're rebuilding now. So that's probably the most important thing. Mm. Oh, the mobilisation that, like, I, I witnessed coming together, and for me, obviously, I knew where you were. I was just, I was so moved by it. It was so powerful. But you know, you're so right. That is the power of our communities, isn't it? You know, that mobilisation, yeah. that coming together. Um, it was incredible. We had put in an order through Coles um, to, to have delivered to the AMS, you know, following the instructions from the group. And I got a call. Well, firstly, I couldn't have it delivered for like four days because all of the delivery slots were booked because so many people were turning up. And 
then the they called me the day of and they said they're like they can't actually process any more orders and I was like wow you know what mm. you all collectively made happen you just turned up for community and community turned up for one another and it was so incredible um you know mm. just such excellent yeah. role modeling as well in really horrible circumstances so um yeah. so you're a postdoc. Yeah. And like some people would think that's like the time after you've been to a doctor's appointment. Like what what does that mean? Like we, we talk in this language in academia. Um, you know, when you're over there doing a postdoc, like what's a postdoc, Dr. Longbottom? <laughs> <laughs> it's um it's 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 where you like when you do your PhD. That's you. You're learning about how to do the research, right? So you're mentored by your supervisors and your supervisory team and that sort of stuff. But the the team you only have a small. Well, it's a big part of your life, but it you know in the scheme of things, it's a small project that you're working on. Yeah. So a postdoctoral program is kind of the next phase. Um, so it's the next part of your training where you can demonstrate that you can do independent research. I still have mentors, but it's not as if um, I have supervisors like I did with my PhD, with the PhD. Um, it's, a, it's a little bit different. It's, it's more responsibility now. Um, uh, you're able to be a lot more creative in terms of, your networks and um, what you do in terms of what you do, uh, the program of work, but you have to have a program of work that you still need to, um, you know, <clears throat> get uh, through ethics and things like that. So I think postdoctoral programs, I've heard some people haven't done a postdoc before, and that's okay it's, um, if you haven't, uh, but if the opportunity comes, they're, they're a good part to have as part of your learning process <clears throat> and when you're looking at your career progression um, as an early career researcher. So it's kind of like those stepping stones to getting you through mm. the academy and I think for me I have been conscious of the fact that a lot of our mob um, get their PhDs and then all of a sudden the institutions can become quite attractive with jumping um, the steps. And I'm not mm. saying that's that's um, a bad thing to do, but I chose this pathway because I wanted to do all the steps first so that um, I'm not being set up to fail, so to speak. And I think it's really important that we understand that once you get a PhD, because there's so few of us with PhDs, um, people kind of gravitate to us. And you've yeah. got to be careful about that because that's the reality of the academy, you know. Um, and I guess for me it was one of those things where I just needed to make sure that I had done the processes and, and that sort of thing. So now it's kind of, and I was only just reflecting on it on my journey just before we started talking about, you know, where I was a few years ago to where I am today. And I still have a lot to learn, you know. Yeah. I'm... I'm just because I have a PhD doesn't mean I, I know it all. It's, it's, it's totally not that. Um, it's just in that little niche area of what I was doing. 
Um, but what it does do is it, it opens your your opportunities again. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm still in the violence and trauma space. Um, I'm looking at uh, doing a, you know, a cross-national study, so a study based in New South Wales and a study based here in, in Hawaii around how the system responds to violence and trauma for Aboriginal Australians and um, or Indigenous Australians and um, Native Hawaiian men, women and children. So I've kind of moved away. Not, I've still, I've expanded my work now mm. to looking at what I found in my PhD was that the systems were areas that um, needed to be looked at mm. as well as the fact that you can't look at or, or solve or address violence in communities if you don't look at the whole family unit. Yeah. So um, a PhD for the listeners is usually quite refined in that you, you, you have to limit the scope of what you look at. So for me, um, I'm looking at, I began by wanting to look at why First Nations people who have university degrees and a sovereign people choose then to spend their time in higher education as academics. But to look at men, women and non-binary people is such a large project that I had to refine that down um, to a more limited scope. And so mine's purely focused on academics who identify as women. Um, and then if you want to use your PhD and go on to be an academic, because, of course, there's around 700 First Nations people with PhDs in this country, but only around 400 who choose to be academics at the moment. So lots of people go out to industry and to do other roles. But the postdoc is an opportunity to perhaps expand and, and look a bit further afield on that topic that you're considered, you know, in quotation marks, an expert in. Um, oh, no, not and, really. <laughs> and build that progressive pathway through academia as a career. Um, and so I really love that. And reflecting on what you said, it made me think of um, someone we both know, Dr. John Lester, who has mentored me in lots of ways since, God, like 14 years now, since my first degree. Um, and he often says to me, perception becomes reality. And so even though going straight from a PhD to a role can be very valid. It can also be really important um, in terms of that resistance we face from non-Indigenous academics or from the outside or whatever, that sometimes you, it, it, it's simpler to do the path, you know, and again, in quotation marks, you know, as it's supposed to be, you know, you don't want to skip a step because that perception of, oh, they've skipped a step is sometimes then they, they treat that as the reality and that's not the case. But um, so I'm hearing you about wanting to do it in that way and I intend on doing a postdoc myself. Yeah, I mean, it, it was my decision, mm. you know. It, was, it wasn't like someone said, well, you need to follow this path. Yeah. Um, but what I really wanted to do was through the PhD I found areas that needed further exploration. Yeah. And... Um, in talking to um, my community contacts here, and coming back and forth from here a number of over a number of years, for like each year I'd probably come and spend about ten days, and um, just talking to community and being present, that kind of made me see that there were some similarities mm. um, in terms of the way you know violence, violence and trauma was experienced, but certainly. Uh, very big differences as well. Yeah. Um, colonisation for one, 
um, was different here than it was back home. And that's yeah. a story that not many people know about. So, you know, it was one of those things that, yes, um, Hawaii is a really beautiful part of the world. Um, I live in Waikiki, um, which is one of the most touristy places I've ever seen and been in. But it's not necessarily the Hawaii that I know mm. and that I love and the communities that I love being in and around. Mm. Um, it's, 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 it's very much um, co-option of Hawaiian culture mm. and partic- particularly the aloha spirit, mm. um, you know, and, and so the thing about that is, you know, some of the things that we take for granted back home, like healthcare, for instance, um, isn't accessible here to some people. Yeah, and wow. poverty and, you know, stuff like that, education. Yeah. And, yeah, so it's very different but very similar at the same time. Mm. And it kind of puts me in a perspective of understanding that um, what other native, and I'm okay using the word native, yeah. uh, other First Nation people um Experience, and I think it's when you when you come out of your own space, and you start to see the world in the in a bigger context, and understanding what what goes on in other parts of the world, and even other parts of the country in terms of Australia, you really start to see the way in which um, white supremacy operates, and how you know in the academy how that can manifest. Mm. Yeah. I was just thinking, didn't like, didn't wasn't there a film called Aloha that like didn't have a single First Nations Hawaiian in it? Um, I'm not sure. I feel like I read that, um, and yeah. that's that's really interesting. Um, of course, the probably the most popular fact that we know over here about Hawaiian colonization is that Valentine's Day is the day the Hawaiians took care of Cook. Um, yeah. But I don't know that that general knowledge around that go, goes much further, and certainly. Um, that I was thinking about that. That's why I said, is it okay actually for me to say aloha to you? Because I thought <laughs> I've seen that in pop culture a lot, which makes me think maybe I should check. <laughs> so we know what yeah. it's like for, you know, I've seen that in pop culture, but I've also seen a white man using a didgeridoo as a trumpet in a movie in the last 12 months. So just because yeah. it's on a movie doesn't mean it's okay. Yeah, in the context that I'm here and you're yeah. saying aloha, yeah. that's okay, I guess. <laughs> um, but if I was back home, we'd just greet each other in our own language ways, yes. you know, back home. Yeah. But, you know, it's it's really important to understand that, yeah, Cook was um, killed um, by the Native Hawaiians here on the Big Island. Um, but it's it, the way colonization happened here was very different. So mm. the Hawaiians had a treaty with Britain. Um, so, mm. and the Union Jack and is embedded within the Hawaiian flag. So it's 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 a little bit different to how we see the flag, yeah. um, and what Britain means to us in our history. Yeah. Um, and then it's more so from the discussions that I've had here with people around the fact that the Americans came in and overthrew, overthrew the, the kingdom and the monarchy because there was an aristocracy type of um, set up here with, um, you know, chiefs and yeah. queens and things yeah. like that pre-contact. So 
you know, it's a very different cultural setup in terms of how our communities were structured, where we have, well, in particular my community, um, we had an egalitarian society. Women were very much part of, you know, the the, the leadership structures in our yeah. communities. And that's still um, the same today, although, you know, the patriarchal system mm. of the Westminster system would like to have, you know, Aboriginal women quiet and silenced, which is kind of not what I'm used to. But, yes, you know, there's a whole lot of things and I think the the one thing and language here was removed, which was similar to back home, but now like the University of Hawaii, they um, they have courses in Hawaiian language, um, that uh, language is embedded within course uh, school curriculum. Um, the Hawaiian way of being is embedded in in lots and lots of ways in the schools. And there's also these amazing charter schools, as well as um, which are like public schools, and as well as some of the private schools. And just the way in which Hawaiian culture is embedded within the curriculum, and and the processes like. Um, just yeah it's just amazing how they work with taro or carlo what they call taro um and you know just the relationship they have with land and and all that sort of thing and it's just amazing place to be and when when i'm contrasting the difference but the similarities and what sovereignty means here Mm. to hawaiians and what it means to us back home that's brilliant. I'm, of course, Dr. Michael Donovan's over in Hawaii as well at the moment on his Fulbright. Yeah. And he's education and someone that we know in common. And um, obviously I'm in education and I'm really looking forward to seeing his work because of all those yeah. things that you point yeah. out, like their, their education system, there's a lot there that um, I want to know more about. So I'm really looking forward to that research. And um, yeah. 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 yeah, I was I was at a charter school just this week uh, at one of the communities, and it was fantastic. You had local Hawaiian teachers, and it was just fantastic the way that culture is embedded in within the school curriculum and things like that, and just their values and 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 their principles and what they're about. It's just a brilliant way, and me being, you know, from an evaluator health perspective, it's like there's this whole model of care, even even within the education system. You can mm. see how they bring social determinants of health into, mm. and cultural determinants of health into the education space. So it's just an amazing, amazing um, setting to be in, and just to, without being too like. Um, like you know, when you have anthropologists come yeah, in and yeah. they want to be a doctor, and, yeah, you know, totally. stuff like that is. <laughs> I was just thinking, like, oh, I would love to come and study that, and then I was like, oh my god, Amy, listen to you. Like, I was just so, thinking, I'll yeah, come and sip coconuts I, with Marlene. And... Yeah. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, yeah. Without going into that game, yes, realm. Yeah. So yeah. part of my work is is ethnography. So I'm kind of looking at things from the perspective of. How do I do this work without intrusively observing or reproducing what white p- 
people have done to us in the past. So yeah. I'm often at tension at this in this tension of mm. you know what what does because ethnography is a is a part of anthropology and yeah. and I'm doing critical ethnography. So it's I'm always questioning um, back. So I'm always looking and also bringing in things like critical race theory and intersectionality. So I'm still using those methods from my PhD. But it's like on a grander scale and what does that mean for Hawaiian people and what does that mean for Aboriginal people? So it's, a lot of it is just thinking this stuff through and, and yarning to different people about their perspectives and stuff like that. And it's um, it's an amazing learning journey and, um, you know, I'm, I'm doing some amazing work with some amazing people and I'm very, I feel very, very blessed to be able to be here with, um, the support of you know my institution as well as my mentor Professor Kathy Clapham. So you know it's um, it's one of those things that I would never have thought as a twenty year old. You know I'd be you know forty five and and in Hawaii doing a postdoctoral project. It's amazing. Um, it's beautiful. I'm I'm so I'm so happy that you're sharing this. I think people are going to love this yarn. Um, so my last question before our Twitter questions is, what's your favourite part of being a black academic? I have so many. <laughs> I have, you know, it's obviously seeing people like yourself flourish and, and learn and, and and find your footing and voice in the academy. I think that's that's probably one of, one of the biggest things. And there's, um, there's a, a PhD student I just want to shout out uh, from Wollongong, Vanessa Kavner. Oh, I the- love her. <laughs> yeah. And just seeing, uh, we went to um, the um, the the, uh, the PhD workshop um, in New Zealand last year, and I'm uh, just before NASA, and just mm. seeing the experiences and, and a lot of uh, First Nations PhD students that I've seen. That's probably one of the one of the highlights in like I'm only just through so I'm not I'm not old in terms of my experiences um, in the academy by any means um, but I guess for me it's it's about how do we maintain our, ourselves and our strength and but also how do we support each other to get through because one of um, one of my PhD supervisors who is Bronwyn Fredericks and the other was um, John Maynard they kept me really grounded in yeah. community. Yeah. And one thing that Bronwyn always said to me is how do we bring community with us? Mm. And I think um, in light of what we see currently um, in the first few weeks of this year, mm. we've seen a lot of lateral violence. Yeah. And and I think that there's no place for that when that's a, that's, um, an, a behaviour that we've brought on or adapted and adopted ourselves to um and so I think you know given the fact that we've gone through all of these fires and and things like that it's we've got to come together at some stage and part of being an academic is supporting community and people like yourself who are coming through to get the PhD um so I guess it's it's kind of like everything I do um it doesn't feel like a job as I'm always reading um, always writing something, um, you know. I like the academic freedom. Yeah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I like yes. to be able to question things yes. as an academic. But I also 
like to challenge people in their thinking. So a lot of us um, in the race space in particular, um, yeah, it, it, it's one of those things where I don't know if we'll change the world, but, you know, if it makes a safer a safer place for more in the academy, though, then I know I've done my work, you know, I've done, I know I've done the right thing. So it's probably that, making the academy a little bit more safer, um, but also, you know, making sure, um, you know, like what Prof Aileen Morton-Robinson said to us, what legacy will you leave behind? Yeah. And... I think that's kind of what driven me, what has driven me. It's like I have a son, what what about my grandchildren, you know, what about my great-grandchildren and, and that, that legacy yeah. and what about the kids from my mission and, you know, the nephews and nieces and their kids. Yeah. So what, what legacy do we leave behind for them? Yeah, I love that. I had an uncle saying something similar to me this morning, that that's why we do what we do. It's about legacy and the foundation and what can be built on top of that work. That's um, right. That's... I think it's important that, you know, we stay humble in the process but at the same time don't tear each other down. Yeah. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, the, the system as it is, that does enough for us, you know, it does that does that hard work where we've got to push and resist and yeah. So I just I just see a lot of that on on a lot of in a, in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Experienced it myself as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's the beautiful thing about not being the only black academic, isn't it? There's there's always mm-hmm. someone who's been through it before us. For I mean for us younger ones, so the 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 emerging academics and the yeah. the ones who are entering a system that's already been quite significantly challenged by the ones who have gone before us and, and can then, mm-hmm. um, and obviously I'm behind you and you're paving the way ahead of me and, and you're acknowledging mentors like, you know, Professors Maynard and Professor Frederick and um, knowing that we have those people who can say, oh, I've been through that. Um, mm. There's a name for I, that. That's yeah. lateral violence, or that's this, and here's my yeah. advice, <laughs> or here's what I did. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, and I mean, you know, it's it's part of part and parcel, uh, unfortunately, of of the environment that we work in. And um, but you know what, we we are resilient, and I think we need to um, just grow together, yeah. and you know, to have those spaces and and places open and. Um, for us to yarn things through and that sort of thing. And I think that, you know, if we can, um, you know, be in the space, like I, I always think about, you know, my mentors, obviously um, John and, and Bronwyn, but also Prof Aileen and um, Pro- uh, Professor Marcia Langton, you know, all the stuff that they had to go through to get where they are today in order for us to be here. You know, it's... Um, they're they're the thing that I I sit back and I think well you know we might have it tough now but what you know what did they have to push through in order to get the the opportunities open for people like us to come through I think I think a lot of people lose sight of that yeah and and um it's one of those things that you know I'm always always pay respect where respect is due Mm. and for and for people who have really 
you know, open the pathways for us. You know, uh, we're advancing Indigenous research knowledges and that's what excites me. Yeah. Um, it's really just um, we're all like if you if you look at all of the different people now coming through getting PhDs, um, you know, there was a guy I read about having um, a PhD in mathematics, you know, wow, microbiology, you know, all sorts of different yeah. things. And I, I'm just like, wow, um, this is a really exciting time and I think the next 10 to 20 years is going to be even more exciting as, you know, as these as people come through, it's just, and, you know, geography, for instance, Vanessa, she's she's an amazing PhD student. And, we, and, you know, we have a couple other PhD students at Wollongong. Um, um, Liz Dale, she's in psychology, you know, and, and Darcel Wu, she's um, doing stuff around dementia. And we know, you know, aged care and dementia is, is, a, really big, is a really big area for us and our communities. So you know, just it's just it just excites me. Yeah. <laughs> I can talk about this all day, but it's just where people's passions lie, yeah. and I think that's that's different to some other people's reasonings for doing PhDs. And um, I, I saw a tweet earlier today, and someone said something about was a PhD worth it, and and that person was like, no, it wasn't, and. Um, I kind of thought of, I saw Sister Chelsea Bond say, um, you know, it depends on, you know, what the purpose was yeah. or why you were doing a PhD. Yeah. And that kind of made me think about Chelsea is exactly right because, you know, you look at blackfellas and what we do in our PhDs or in our master's programs and things like that and there's always something, uh, there's always something that's sparked that fire. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I don't, yeah, I think the, if if we consider how many First Nations PhD holders just grew up knowing they'd get a PhD, like it would be tiny number of people. I mean, I think we're at a point where there are some second generation academics now, but for many of us, we're first finished high school, um, mm. and not because those before us didn't want to learn or have access to those knowledge systems, but because they weren't allowed in. And so, yeah. like, I know for me personally, if I finish this PhD and just think, you know what, actually, academia is not for me and I go do something else, I'm never going to regret the PhD because <laughs> I've done it. And then it, it's, for me, it's a it's a nod to the people who've raised me, who have mm. nurtured me, and then my family are no longer a family when no one's ever done that. And I think yeah. for a lot of people just knowing someone who's done it makes them think oh well then I could like you know and I think sometimes I muck around on Twitter or I like to put things up about mistakes I've made because I want people to be like well Amy's normal and she's doing it so maybe I can do it if they're interested in doing it um, mm. but yeah the purpose that matters hey I mean as uh, for me it's like well I didn't finish high school I only went to year 11 yeah um and high school wasn't for me. I, I didn't, yeah. like, anyone who knows me now, I was quite shy and reserved in high school. I, was, I wasn't quite uh, out there as what I am now. Um, but, you know, you learn, to, you, you learn to grow into yourself as you get older. But I went to Tranby Aboriginal College back when, um, when I was in my, yeah, I was 18. And, 
and that kind of planted the seed for me because Tramby being um, an Aboriginal community controlled organisation, it just made and you know, that year was the was the year of the world's Indigenous peoples. Mm. So that on top of me being at Tramby, and that was kind of what the amazing people that I met there through adult education. Not all of us get through high school, yeah. but it's what you do after that, you know. Um, and then I felt pregnant and had my son, which meant that um, I had to go a different trajectory. I couldn't just stop working and um, go to uni. So I had to find courses that offered block release or external yeah. delivery, you know. So I had to do my my undergrad and all that sort of stuff. And I'm a health worker by background, so... You know, I was at TAFE doing the vet courses and that and then just progressively got my degree and um, I took the scenic route. No one, when I did my degree, no one told me about this pathway from honours to PhD. Um, But, you know, I did my degree and got a couple other um, postgraduate qualifications and so about overall 20 years it's taken me uh, to get to the point where I am now. Um, But... In doing that, like um, I'm not saying you could go to uni and, and that's the wrong way. You just got to find your own path, yeah. and um, I think that's probably the beauty in it. You you learn from the path mm. and the mistakes and the, and well, not the mistakes, the lessons um, and the successes. You know, yeah. it's like just and my I'm the first in my family with a degree. Um, my cousin he got his degree. Uh, in terms of my extended family, um, first in my community, that is in um, the Shelhaven, uh, as an Aboriginal woman with a PhD. Um, but, you know, I'm just mild. At the end of the day, I just slot straight back into that middle cousin position and I still got my older cousin bossing me around and, <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> it's you, you, you just, um, yeah, it's just one of those things. I think that's such an important message, though, you know, this idea that, well, firstly, high school is not academia. High school is not tertiary study. It's super common for for anyone to have a hard time at high school because it's a horrible freaking time of life. Like, it's it's got puberty. It's got, like, all that stuff. You know, no one knows who they are. Like, you couldn't pay me enough to be 14 again. Ew. And then on top of that, we know it's especially hard for First Nations people because the system's really not friendly for us and it was never designed to be. Um, You know, they can try and retrofit it, but it was never designed to include us. And so I think the independence and the ability to, like all of those different options, you know, the way you did it is one way to do it. Um, There are pathways. So I finished year 12, but I didn't end up getting an ATAR. because I had missed an assessment, um, something like that. And uh, it was a real, you know, crap fight at the end because I'd worked so hard to get to the end of year 12 um, and my grades were really good. It was something really silly. And then I was really grateful because Gabali had like, I think it had only been going for a couple of months. I think I was one of the first intakes through an alternate pathway. I still went straight from high school. I totally had the academic ability, but actually if that, First Nations controlled centre started by the woman who is now one of my PhD supervisors, Dr. Leanne Holt. <laughs> it was so funny the way these cycles happen. Um, you know, Chris George and all that, when it's at my interview, showed my work and they're like, yep, you can, you know, do it. 
but that's one way. There are others who come straight in. There are others who don't start till they are 40. Or, you know, we have elders doing PhDs now. We have mm. lawmen coming in and saying, you know, what? how do we translate existing knowledge or acknowledge existing um, you know, knowledge holdership in that way. And I think there are so many pathways and I just don't think enough people know that. I just don't think enough people know that if you're curious and you're hungry and you think maybe it's something for you, there's probably a pathway to, mm. to come on in. And, and uh, you know, having had a bad go in school doesn't mean that you'll have a bad go in academia. Um, mm. Yeah, so I and, that. and I think the support um that our institutions have for Aboriginal students is vital. Mm, um, yeah. Aboriginal students do experience different experiences to non-Aboriginal students, particularly yeah. around our interconnectedness, how connected we are as communities. Um, sorry, business for one, mm. you know, an elder could pass and that means a whole community is um, seeing to sorry business. So I guess, you know, th there's just things that, um, you know, we need to be aware of that these institutions have often excluded us and they yes. have excluded us, but there's people yeah. who have pushed and pushed and pushed yeah. and made a pathway for us. Yeah. And I think we need to maximise and, and those opportunities as well and understand the fight that, you know, that that took for to get us to be present in the institutions. Yeah. And I think there's a there's a lot. I remember when um, actually when I was working at at Wallatooka and I was teaching in the Yapug program, yeah. and um, an Aboriginal lady she had um, two kids. She just said to me, Marlene, um, I don't think uni is for me, and I don't know where the best place is for me. And I said, right now the best place is for you for you to be for your children is here. Yeah. And now, you know, as far as the last I heard, she was doing a law degree. So, you know, it's it's about uni can be hard. Yeah. Um, but it, it can also be a place where you make really awesome friendships and things yeah. like that. But I think through those lessons and once you get through it, it's like, wow, I've, I've actually done it, you know. Yeah. It's um, I don't know how many times I was crying over my PhD just because I just didn't know what I didn't know. Yes. It was like, how come, how come I can't, like, I was, I had to read Foucault that many times. And, <laughs> you know, he was, yeah. he, out of the PhD, he was probably the hardest to get my head around. But then once I, I kind of got it, I was like, oh, okay. So, you know, it took me a while, YouTube, you know, podcast, yeah. just listening to how people write about him. So you just got to work out a way and, um, and not give up. Because even if, if you can't read, or understand, like I remember reading um, Irabina's work about um, in, uh, uh, in Aboriginal intelligentsia mm, yes. and science, the science paper. And I was like, oh, my goodness, what am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. I'm so far out of my depth. But now, uh, you know, I can just quote it, you know, just like that today. So, I mean, yeah. It's it's hard, but it's also that's what it's about. You know, you know, you just um, commit yourself to a program of work and just try and get through it. Yeah, you know? yeah, that's right. That's that's fantastic. Like I hate doing things for the first time because yeah. that fear of failure, not knowing how I'm doing, like how to do it, makes me feel dumb. Um, mm. And then 
you know, you get your feedback from your supervisors and they point out structure or tips or tricks and you learn and you try again and like, you know, you, you just keep going. Um, so mm -hmm. in the lead up to creating this podcast, I asked Twitter what they'd like most to hear about from Blackademics. So the following questions <laughs> came from that thread. Um, so I think you've kind of answered this one, um, but feel free to elaborate if you'd like to. So at Alice underscore TPS asks, who has championed, supported, slash mentored you? Oh, wow. I've had a lot of mentors. <laughs> I've had academic mentors, the people who I've already mentioned. So obviously my PhD supervisors, um, John Maynard and, and um, Bronwyn Fredericks, as well as um, Kathy Clapham, um, Professor Eileen Morton-Robinson, Marsha Langton, Uncle Mick Adams, Dawn Besserab. Um, but the other people that have also taught me are my community members as well, you know, people that I've worked in the community and alongside and, you know, particularly... Uh, in the Women's Health and Welfare Service um, in NARA and the, um, the other Aboriginal Community Control Health Services who I work alongside. Um, I think one of the biggest lessons for me that I was part of a, a building Indigenous research um, capacity project that was um, led out of JCU, which is kind of ironic as James Cook University um, <laughs> now here in Hawaii. Um, but the professor there... Um, you know, Rick Spear and um, the PVC, I think she's at Monash now or um, just into Elston, that program really actually embedded um, Indigenous knowledge, knowledges and, and the mentors that were part of that. So I've had lots and lots and lots of, like, academic mentors. But I think for me, my aunties, you know, my mum, she was a single mum raising me and my sister, um, we, we came off a mission, so my grandparents were also part of the people who raised me. So, again, their mentors, um, my aunties, the elders from back home, you know. And I think for me I see leadership in, in lots of different ways and young people even show leadership. So I think it's really important that we nurture that leadership and that, um, that strength when we see it. That's beautiful. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for coming on and being a guest on Blackademia, Dr Longbottom. It has been a pleasure having you. Thank you um, for including me and, um, yeah, I hope to see you soon. That's all we have time for for this week's episode of Blackademia. If you'd like to know more about Dr Longbottom's work, head over to our website, www.blackademia.com. Yalu!